Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Good evening, children of the night. Come in, come in, come in. Find your accustomed place with your usual friends. And here we are. Lawrence Santoro here, and you, you there. It's the coolest spot in the building right here, and I mean that in so many ways. The day, yes, was horrid, but yesterday, oh, yesterday was worse. Shoved past the mid-90s toward a hundred yesterday, but here, here, no tales to terrify will cool you, chill you, make you happy all at once. So, settle down. This is the place. The Nook and I will spin a tale for you, give you the benefit of Mike Allen's knowledge and efforts, provide you with news and information, and perhaps a poem— and then I'll kick you out into the night to wander and, of course, discuss. Simple, okay? As mentioned, Mike Allen will take you on another tour of the abattoir this week. This week, Mike slushes through the slaughter without benefit of Shailen Hurlbert, though. Then we'll have a delightful little tale of Edgar Allan Poe, of Hollywood horror and overweight chimpanzees. And that'll be from Kim Newman. And who knows more about Hollywood and monsters than Kim Newman? No one that I know of. But before the joy, the business. As mentioned on previous evenings here, we need narrators. You know what to do. Send us a minute or two of your reading, something of interest to you, to us, and get it off to tales to terrify at gmail.com. Writers, too. We need your efforts, your children, published, unpublished. Send them to the same place, standard submission format. And artists, oh gosh, yes, artists. Yes, you may have noticed we put up new cover art every month. Today is the last we'll show Alan M. Clark's lovely work. Next week, we'll have another piece. 
this time by an old starship sofa friend. Well, you'll see. But anyway, we're always looking for dark, for scary, for well-done, creepy images. Show us. Send us an image or two to tales to terrify at gmail.com. Yep, that's the same address. And another thing. Now, don't get too excited. We are about to hit our six-month anniversary here at Tales to Terrify, egad. The frights delivered in the chill of winter now burn forth in the heat of summer, and soon the cycle will be ended and will begin again. And what does that mean? It means that for the next few weeks, Tony and others and I will be pulling together, wait for it, are you ready? Yes. Tales to Terrify, Volume 1, The Book, Ink on Paper, A Thing You Can Hold in Your Frighted Paws, Something to be Loved, to be Read, Held, Smelt, and Something for the Shelf in a Nook of Your Own. We'll have some things you've heard. We'll also have lots you've not. There will be art and such. I'd love for there to be a decoder ring, but there probably will not be one of those rats. And besides, what box top, what label could we ask you to cut off and send along with your 25 cents? I lament the passing of that era in merchandising. I, I miss wheat checks and Ovaltine just for their tops and labels. Ah, ah well. But back to Tales to Terrify, Volume 1. I don't know at this point when it'll be out, only that it will be out later in the year. And I know it will be beautiful, and you'll have to be the first kid on your block to have it. Oh, really? Now, down to tax, brass-wise. We've got Mike Allen, as announced, and he'll take us on a tour of the abattoir. Hello there, Tales to Terrify listeners, and welcome to yet another installment of Tour of the Abattoir. Recently, a friend of mine, the wonderful poet and editor Rose Lemberg, asked me what horror story I would make every teenager read on their 17th birthday. You know, it was hard for me to narrow that answer down to just one. There's a number of horror stories that figure significantly in not just my development as a writer, but my development as a person with a particularly twisted mind. You could say these stories did the twisting. It starts in third grade, when my well-meaning teacher read Poe's The Telltale Heart to a circle of students on Halloween, and my still-mutatable eight-year-old brain freaked the hell out. I actually wrote a tiny short story about the experience many years later, which was published in the special Poe-themed issue of Weird Tales in 2009. I share it with you now. It's very short. Six Waking Nightmares Poe Gave Me in Third Grade 1. At night, the light fixture above my bed stretched into a pale blue vulture eye, and the emaciated ghost of the man it belonged to swirled out, craggy face contorted in silent accusation, as he reached for me, 
but two. I didn't dare turn my head for fear of the man with the toothsome smile who would emerge from my closet and disassemble himself like a thing made of paper tabs and glue and what he would look like as he kept crawling towards me. Yet three. If I shut my eyes, the old man would never leave me alone. The pounding I heard, not the pulse of blood in my ears, but the beat of his heart, thumping, 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 as he lay dismembered beneath my bed. And four. If I kept my eyes shut, I would feel the deadly rush of air as that long curved blade swung from above, swept lower and lower as I lay wrapped and trapped in my blankets. I could never, ever sleep, and five. If I did, I would wake up buried, faceless men dumping dirt on me from above as I screamed in my coffin, smothered and alone with the gold bugs that bit and the death-watch beetles and hideous throngs of conqueror worms. But six... None of it mattered, no matter how many nights I stayed awake and afraid, because soon the great raven that hid in every shadow would pluck out my pale and fluttering soul, and I knew then I would never more see happiness or heaven. That was just the start. Here's some other stories that depth-charged my young mind. H.P. Lovecraft's The Rats in the Walls, Pickman's Model, and The Thing on the Doorstep. Harlan Ellison's I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. Thomas M. Dish's Descending. Stephen King's Jerusalem's Lot, The Boogeyman, and a number of other stories from his best collection, Night Shift. George R. R. Martin's Sand Kings. Octavia Butler's Blood Child any of the stories in Clive Barker's Books of Blood. At some point, morbid fascination became addiction, and I saturated myself so deeply in the ways of horror that it transformed into something I loved, rather than something I feared. And I still continued to find horror tales that affected me powerfully. The Autopsy, by Michael Shea. Sticks, by Carl Edward Wagner. When Darkness Loves Us, by Elizabeth Engstrom. Teatro Grotesco and Purity, by Thomas Ligotti. Bulldozer and the Imigo Sequence, by Laird Barron. Since we're on the topic of short stories, I've promised for two or three columns now that I'd give you a review of a cutting-edge collection of creepy tales that first came out last year, Let's Play White, by Cheshire Burke. What do you make of a book that earns praise from both new horror master Laird Barron and from internationally acclaimed poet Nicky Giovanni? I think you can safely guess that you're in for something delightfully different, shiver-inducing horror with an unflinching social conscience, full of grim supernatural events that tear the veil off of an even grimmer reality. So why is it called Let's Play White? The title comes from the opening story, Walter and the Three-Legged King, a tale that signals that gore and gotcha scares aren't really what's on Burke's mind. It's about an unemployed black man who can't catch a break. 
In addition to all his financial woes, he has to contend with a monstrous rat wreaking havoc in his slum apartment. A gruesome confrontation with the creature takes a surreal turn, and Walter ends up headed for a different kind of horror, as the rat, who turns out to be the king of rats, sweet-talks him into staving off the loss of what little he still owns by surrendering his dignity. The king's words to Walter are, Let's play white. This doesn't mean assuming a white man's role, but playing the only role a white man will let him have. This is a common thread through Burke's stories. African Americans forced to make horrific choices to survive the hostile environments created for them by the interwoven vectors of poverty and racism. The supernatural elements in these stories become a double-edged sword, offering ways out but also weighs into deeper trouble. The women in these stories have it especially dire, as the men in their own community sometimes fear their power and align against them. Burke takes on a number of different approaches within these parameters. There's Purse, about a woman afraid of being robbed and assaulted on the subway that plays out like a solid kick to the gut. There's Q Change, an offbeat take on the zombie apocalypse that suggests humanity might be better off once we've all been bitten. The light of Cree turns a river baptism into an ominous and transfiguring event. The unremembered implies that forgetting a cultural history can be fatal, in all senses of the term, and remembering it and sharing it, life-giving. Two longer stories dominate the collection. Chocolate Park follows multiple narrative threads to move us through a brutal tapestry as the lives of several residents of an impoverished housing project fatally collide. A chain of events that starts with a drug debt brings about escalating retaliation that results in the destruction of a child's innocence and motivates an old woman who knows voodoo magic to make the ultimate sacrifice in order to set things right. The teachings and redemption of Miss Fanny Lou Mason introduces us to a woman with witch-like powers who is begged for help everywhere she goes, then driven off as fear of what's different turns people against her. She recognizes the same talent in a pair of young sisters she meets and tries to teach them what she knows before enemies driven by petty grudges and religious fervor can catch up to her and hunt her down. These stories while not horror in the way a Laird Baron tale is horror, take the reader into one squirm-inducing situation after another, and dish out their shares of gore, though gore is not the aim. They share in common a theme of an older generation giving up life and limb, so the younger generation can have a chance. If I have any nits to pick, it's that some of the tales are too inconclusive to have a lasting emotional impact. I felt that way about Walter and the Three-Legged King, as if it ended where the rhythm of the story seemed to require a couple beats more. The room where Ben disappeared sets up a fascinating situation in which a black teenager has to magically leave the world to escape a lynching, and it's ambiguous as to whether this means of escape was a desirable thing or not, but I was left feeling there was another shoe that was supposed to drop that never did. These objections, however, are not strong enough to stop me from recommending that you try this collection out. It's published by Apex Books and available anywhere books are sold online. 
It's a truly unique horror-related experience. So I'm glad I finally got to share that with you, but my obligations to you are hardly over. I'll be talking to you within the next couple installments about a debut novel by Ennis Drake, 28 Teeth of Rage, that just buzz-sawed out into the marketplace, and of course, Laird Barron's first novel, The Croning. How does it compare to his short game? And my movie-reviewing partner, Shallon Hurlbert, and I are coordinating a look at Prometheus, Ridley Scott's prequel to Alien. So there's plenty of reason for y'all to keep coming back. And until then, stay scared. Thank you, Mike. You know my relationship with Poe, my grandfather's reading of his stories, his poetry, with me snuggled next to him, following along. That was my first peek into literature. For my kidhood, Poe was poetry. His dark tales inspired a lifetime of reading and an, an urge to dig among other dusty volumes of dark tale spinning. Still, for me, I guess the tale I'd shove under the nose of a 17-year-old is... Lovecraft's The Color Out of Space, which we did a few weeks ago here. And about Chesia Burke, we'll soon have one of her tales from Let's Play White. In a few weeks, we'll present Q Change, read for us by Chicago actor extraordinaire Jamie Black. And I am looking forward to that. Again, thanks, Mike. We'll see you again next month, and in the meantime, you can visit him and his blog... Just click the spot below. And okay. So long as we're talking about Poe, and since we have had no poetry of late, let me read a little bit of Edgar Allan. It's a piece called The Conqueror Worm. Lo, tis a gala night within the lonesome later years, an angel throng, bewinged, bedight in veils, and drowned in tears, sit in a theatre to see a play of hopes and fears, while the orchestra breathes fitfully the music of the spheres. Mimes, in the form of God on high, mutter and mumble low, and hither and thither fly, mere puppets they who come and go at bidding of vast Formless things that shift the scenery to and fro, Flapping from out their condor wings, invisible woe. That motley drama, oh, be sure it shall not be forgot, With its phantom chased forevermore by a crowd that sees it not, through a circle that ever returneth into the self-same spot, and much of madness and more of sin and horror the soul of the plot. But see, amid the mimic rout, a crawling shape intrude, a blood-red thing that writhes from out the scenic solitude. It writhes, it writhes with mortal pangs. The mimes become its food, and seraphs sob at vermin fangs in human gore imbued. Out, out are the lights, out all, and over each 
quivering form, the curtain, a funeral pall, comes down with the rush of a storm, while the angels all pallid and wan, uprising, unveiling, affirm that the play is the tragedy man and its hero, the conqueror worm. Okay. At four years of age, I had no idea, but Pop-Pop was a good reader and made everything sound scary, and I loved hearing him read and being snuggled close and safe from all those things out there in the world that could get you and eat you and worse, scare you was always such a joy. Anyway, why read that? There's a British-American film from 1968. It's called The Witchfinder General. It was one of those American international productions. Opinions vary on the quality of this little sadomasochistic witch-hunting, finding, tormenting, then killing gem. One thing, Vincent Price is here and there attributed to saying that this was his best performance in a horror film. The reason I mention it here is that the film is sometimes known as The Conqueror Worm because Mr. Price gets to intone the first few lines of the poem in the opening moments of the film, then speaks from beyond the grave the poem's end lines at the end of the film. That's only in the American version, probably since Roger Corman forced Vincent Price down the throat of the director, Michael Reeves, who apparently wanted Donald Pleasance for the role of the sadistic witchfinder. And since Reeves and Price barely spoke to one another, and since Price wasn't allowed any poetic flights of fancy in the role, American International put a few lines of Poe's The Conqueror Worm in the mouth of Price's character 200 dead years before Poe wrote them. But I come close to digressing here. The reason I bring all of this up will become obvious when you listen to this week's main fiction it comes from British author, critic, all-round interesting fellow, Kim Newman. And if you've ever watched a classic horror film on DVD or caught a History Channel reconstruction of the Ripper murders, for example, chances are you've seen and heard Kim. Here, for your delight, is Kim Newman's Illimitable Dominion. Okay, you could say it was my fault. I'm the one. Me, Walter Paisley, agent to Stars Without Stars on Hollywood Boulevard. I said, spare a thought for Eddie, and the Poe plague got started. It's 1959, and you know the montage. Cars have shark fins. Jukeboxes blare the platters and Frankie Lyman. Ike's a back number, but JFK hasn't yet broken big. The commies have put Sputnik in orbit, starting a war of the satellites. Coffee houses are full of beards and bad poetry. Boomba the Chimp, my biggest client, has a kitty series canceled out from under him. Every TV channel is showing some western, but my pitches for the Cherokee Chimp, the Monkey Marshal of Mesa City, and Boomba Goes West. The only network I have an in with is Dumont, which shows how low the Paisley Agency has sunk since the heyday of Jungle Jillian and her Gorilla Gorillas, with Boomba as the platoon's comedy relief mascot and The Champ, The Chimp, and The Imp, 
A washed-up boxer is friends with a cigar-smoking chimpanzee and a leprechaun. American International Pitches is a fancy name for James H. Nicholson and Samuel Z. Arkoff sharing an office. They call themselves a studio, but you can't find an AIP backlot. They rent abandoned aircraft hangars for sound stages and shoot as much as possible out of doors and without permits. At the end of the 50s, AIP are cranking out 30, 40 pitches a year, double features shoved into ozoners and grindhouses, catering to the clearasil crowd. They peddle tufas on low-budget juvenile delinquency, reform school girl with runaway daughters, affordable science fiction, terror from the year 5000 with The Brain Eaters, inexpensive chart music, rock all night with The Ghost of Dragstrip Hollow, Cheapskate Creatures, I Was a Teenage Werewolf with The Undead, Frugal Combat, Suicide Battalion with Paratroop Command, or Cut Price Exotica, She-Gods of Shark Reef with Teenage Caveman. When Jim and Sam try for Epic, they hope a marquee-filling title, The Saga of the Viking Women in Their Voyage to the Waters of the Great Sea Serpent, distracts the hot rodders from subminimal production values and a 90-cent sea serpent filled in choppy bath water. The AIP racket is that Jim thinks up a title, say, The Beast with a Million Eyes or The Cool and the Crazy, and commissions lurid ad art, which he buries in hard-sell slogans. He shows ads to exhibitors who chip in modest production coin. Then a producer is put on the project. Said producer gets a writer in over the weekend and forces out a script by shoving peanuts through the bars. Somebody has to direct the pitch and be in it, but so long as a teenage doll in a tight sweater screams on the poster at a monster, a switchblade, or a guitar player, no one thinks too much about them. Sam puts fine print into contracts, which make sure no one sees profit participation and puffs cigars at trade gatherings. Roger Corman is only one of a corral of producers, Bert I. Gordon and Alex Gordon are others, on AIP's string, but he's the youngest, busiest, and cheapest. After, to his mind, wasting half his budget hiring a director named Wyatt Ordung, a 1954 masterpiece called The Monster from the Ocean Floor, Roger trims the budgets by directing most of the films himself. He seldom does a worse job than Wyatt Ordung, Five critics in France and two in England say Roger is more interesting than Cukor or Zinnerman. Although, unaccountably, it conquered the world, missed out on a Best Picture nomination. Then again, Mike Todd wins for Around the World in 80 Days. I'd rather watch Lee Van Cleef blowtorch a snarling turnip from Venus at 68 minutes and David Niven smarm over 200 smug cameo players in far-flung locations for three or four hours. You don't have to be a contributor to Cayenne du Kinema or Sight and Sound to agree. After 60, 70 films inside four years, it gets so Roger can knock them off over a weekend. No kidding. Little Shop of Horrors is made in three days because it's raining and Roger can't play tennis. He tackles every subject within certain Jim and Sam imposed limits. He shoots movies about juvenile delinquent girls, gunslinger girls, reincarnated witch girls, beatnik girls, escaped convict girls, cave girls, viking girls, monster girls, apache girls, rock and roll girls, girls eaten by plants, carnival girls, sorority girls, last girls on earth, pearl diver girls, and gangster girls. Somehow he skips jungle girls, else maybe Boomba would land an AIP contract. The thing is, everybody except Sam, who chortles over the ledges without ever seeing the pitches, 
gets bored with the production line. Another week and it's Blood of Dracula plus High School Hellcats. Ho-hum. I don't know when Roger gets time to dream, but dream he does, of bigger things. Jim thinks of bigger posters, or at least different shape posters. In the 50s, the enemy is television, but AIP product looks like television, small and square and black and white and blurry, with no one you've ever seen of wandering around Bronson Carvin. Drive-in screens the shape of windshields, but the typical AIP just lights up a middle slice. Even with Attack of the Crab Monsters, the Amazing Colossal Man, and the She-Creature triple-built, kids are restless. Where's the breathtaking cinemascope, glorious technicolor, and stereoscopic sound? 3D has come and gone, and neither Odorama nor William Castle's butt buzzers are goose in the box office. Jim or Roger get a notion to lump together the budgets and shooting schedules of two regular AIP pitches and throw their all into one 85-minute super production. Together, they browbeat Sam into opening the cobweb checkbook. This time, Mike Todd, well, not Mike Todd since he's dead, but some imaginary composite big-shot producer, will have to watch out come Oscar season. So, what to make? In England, they start doing horror pitches in color with talented actors and starched collars and proper sets. Buckets of blood and girls in low-cut nightgowns are included, so it's not like there's art going on. Every other AIP quickie has a monster in it, so the company reckon they're expert at Fright Fair. There's your answer. Roger will make a classy, but not too classy, horror. Jim can get Vinnie Price to star. He's been in that butt-buzzing William Castle film for Columbia and a 3D house of wax for Warners and is therefore a horror name. But his career is stalled with TV guest spots on debatably rigged quiz programs or as fairly fruity actors touring Tombstone on Western shows. After Brando, well-spoken dinner-jacketed eyebrow arches like him are out of A pitches. What Jim and Roger don't have is a clue as to what their full-color widescreen spooktacular should be about. They just know Revenge of the Crab Monsters or The Day After the World Ended won't cut it. And to Walter Paisley, with a signet paperback of Tales of Mystery and Imagination. Now, it isn't altruism, it's all about the client. Bumba's out of work and eating his weight in bananas every single day. Bonzo and Cheetah have a lock on working with Dutch Reagan and Tarzan, so my star is unfairly shut out of the town's few chimp-friendly franchises, unless he's willing to do dangerous, vine-swinging, crocodile-dodging stunts those precious primates want to duck out of. Therefore, I'm obligated to scare up properties suitable as vehicles for a pot-bellied chimpanzee. I ponder a remake of King Kong with a chimp instead of a gorilla, but RKO won't listen. I pitch a biopic of Major Sam, America's monkey astronaut, but that goddamn Russian dog gets all the column inches. In desperation, I ask an intern who once had a few weeks of college about famous out-of-copyright stories with monkeys in them and get pointed at murders in the Rue Morgue. Okay, so strictly the killer in that yarn is an orangutan, not a chimpanzee. But every film version casts a guy in a ratty gorilla suit, so Bumba is hardly wider, the author's original intent. I know of AIP's horror quandary. A light bulb goes on over my head. I dress Boomba up in a fancy suit and cravat and beret for the Parisian look and teach him to wave a cardboard cutthroat razor. 
I marched the chimp into Jim and Sam's office, just as Jim and Roger are looking glumly at a sketch artist holding up a blank board, which ought to be covered with lurid artwork boosting their breakout film. Tragically, Boomba compromises his employment prospects by crapping his velvet breeches and grabbing for Sam's foot-long cigar. But my pulp paperback falls onto the desk, and Roger snatches it up. He once read some of the stories and thinks he particularly liked the fall of the House of Usher. Sam objects. The kids who go to AIP pitches have to study Poe in school and will therefore naturally hate him. But Jim remembers Universal squeezed out a couple of Poe pitches and racked up fair returns back in the Boris and Bella days. Then Sam, who gives every appearance of actually having read The Fall of the House of Usher, says, you can't make a horror movie without a monster, and there's no monster in the story. The house, says Roger, eyes shining. The house is the monster. Jim and Sam look at each other, thinking this over. Bomba is forgotten, chewing the cigar. Then, management buys Roger's line. The house is the monster. Important issues get settled. Is there a part for price? Yes, there's someone in the falling house called Roderick Usher. Is there a girl? Roderick has a sister named Madeline. Paging through the paperback, they discover Poe doesn't say Madeline isn't a teenager in a tight sweater. I suggest that the thin plot of the 18-page story would be improved if a killer chimp escaped from the Rue Morgue and broke into the house of Usher to terrorize the family. No one listens. Jim and Roger run with The Fall of the House of Usher. They happily read out paragraphs in Vinnie Price accents. The sketch artist covers his board with a falling house. Vinnie lifting a terrified eyebrow, a buried alive babe in a tight shroud. Coffins, crypts, skeletons, an atomic explosion, which gets rubbed out quickly, and slogans ripped from Poe prose. He buried her alive to save his soul. I heard her first feeble movements in the coffin. We had put her living in the tomb. Edgar Allan Poe's overwhelming tale of evil and torment. I see my slice of the deal vanishing along with Sam's cigar. Eddie is dead and long out of copyright, so there's no end for him. This cheers Sam up, since he's been all a tremble at the prospect of having to buy rights for some horror book from some unwashed writer. So just when it would take a steam train to stop AIP making the fall of the House of Usher, I mention I am the agent for the Edgar Allan Poe Society of Baltimore and can easily secure permission for a nominal fee for the use of the author's name, which they have registered as a trademark. For a few moments, the room's quiet. No one believes me. Sam's skeptical, but I tell him the reason Poe's middle name is so often misspelled to avoid dues payable to the EAPSOB. He mulls it over. He swallows it because it makes sense to him. He's ready to argue for going with Edgar Allan Poe's House of Asher as a title before Jim and Roger shot him down. Sam doesn't care about critics, but little slivers of Jim and Roger do, so they're ready to strike a deal on the spot. I have a pre-prepared contract which needs crossings out, as it's for a monkey actor rather than an august body as trademark lesser, but it'll still do. As soon as I'm out of the office, I found the Edgar Allan Poe Society of Baltimore and start paperwork on trademark registration. It turns out I'm not even the first in the racket. Edgar Rice Burroughs and Mark Twain, or their heirs, have beaten me to it. The deal may not be 100% kosher, but AIP's check clears. 
Probably they just want to shut me out since I'm theoretically responsible for bringing them the property. Hey, it's my drugstore paperback. They offer me an associate producer credit but forget to include it in the film. Maybe it's lost in the five minutes of swirling multicolored liquids tacked on after the house is burned down and tumbled into the tarn. But from then on, I'm part of the Poe package. The fall of the House of Usher, or the House of Usher as it's called in the posters to save on lettering. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Is made in a comparatively leisurely 15 days. Vinny shaves his mustache under protest as if he were Caesar Romero and wears a white wig, which he likes enough to model in his off hours along Sunset Strip. There are only three other people in the speaking cast, so the star gets first bite at all the scenery available for chewing. On set, Vinny objects to the line, The house lives, the house breathes. Roger tells him the house is the monster, and Vinny sells it with eyeball-rolling, velvet-tongued ham. My capacity is as prod. I have Bumba posed for a portrait as a degenerate usher ancestor. Floyd, the camera genius, doesn't get a good shot of it, so you can't see the chimp's cameo in the picture. This is how it plays. In some earlier century, no one's sure which, a brooding youth with a Brando sneer and a Fabian haircut travels through burned-out wasteland to a painted-on-glass mansion where Vinny twitches at the slightest sound and rolls his eyeballs as if they were marbles. He has extra-sensitive senses, which are a perpetual torment to him, and looks severely pained whenever anyone drops a fork or lights a lamp. Our hero was searching for his missing girlfriend, Vinny's sister, she flits about, showing cleavage, then faints, and is buried alive in the basement. 
girl claws her way out of crypt, irritated, and scratches out Vinny's eyes as if he were making a play for her date at the record hop. A candle falls over, and the house of Usher catches light like a lanta in Gone with the Wind. Indeed, some of the burning building stock footage might be offcuts from David O. Selznick's day. Vinny and girl get crushed and or burned. Our hero makes it out unscorched and broods some more. Presumably his agent has just told him how much he's getting paid and is resolved to quit acting and become a producer so he can wave the foot-long cigar someday. A caption runs, And the deep and dark tarn closed silently over the fragments of the House of Usher. Poe. Just to make sure you know, Eddie's name pops up several more times during the swirly credits. Against expectations, Usher is a monumental hit. Boffo boxo, molto ducats in the coffers. Roger makes money, Vinnie makes money, Sam and Jim make more money than they can imagine, and Jim, at least, has a great imagination. Edgar Allan Poe, or the Baltimore Society in his name, makes money. Even Bumba gets residuals for the use of his unseen likeness. There actually are residuals, and Sam has to find out how to pay them. The matter never came up with voodoo women or phantom from 10,000 leagues. Naturally, being Hollywood, this means only one thing. Sequels. The first pass runs to pitches like Return to the House of Usha, only there's a stinking tarn where the old homestead used to be, so few dramatic possibilities not involving expensive underwater photography present themselves. I spin a story out of my head in which Roderick Usher's ghost crawls out of the tarn as a green monkey with flippers. Jim sees straight off that I'm angling a star role for Bumba and nixes the approach. It'd be easy to take offense. After all, the chimp is a better actor than the duck-tailed hoodlums AIP put ruffs, doublets, and floppy-tasseled hats on in subsequent movies. Skipping through my now dog-eared and broken-spine tales of mystery and imagination, Roger gets excited about the pit and the pendulum. The slavering sketch artist, about whom I'm starting to worry, draws a teeny bopper in a tight sweater strapped down in a pit while Vinny swings a blade over her bazoons. Jim and Sam love this and are disappointed when Roger looks up the story and finds out it's a guy in the dungeons of the Spanish Inquisition. Never mind, he says, the pendulum's the monster. By this he means the torture angle is grabby enough without the added distraction of bazooms. The artist rubs out the bosomage and puts in a manly chest revealed through pendulum slashes in a frilly shirt. So Pet and the Pendulum gets a green light. Even Sam sees one pitcher for the price of two is a better deal if it hauls in ten times the gross of the average four old-style AIP creature features. He quietly squelches Bird-Eye Gordon's puppet people versus the colossal beast project, and Alex Gordon's long-cherished she-creature-meets-the-old-time-singing-cowboy script and pours added shekels into Pit. It's AIP's big hope for 1961. Only problem is... Pit in the Pendulum isn't a story. It's just a scene. Guy in a pit, nearly sliced by Pendulum, escapes. Even Roger can't spin that out to feature length with long shots of dripping walls, gnawing rats, and Vinny licking his lips. The problem is solved, unusually, by the writer. Dick Matheson takes his Usher script, changes the name, and drops the climatic house fire in favor of Pit Pendulum business. This time, brooding youth, 
not the same one, though you'd be hard-pressed to tell the difference, is looking for his missing sister, and she's married to Vinny. But she's still buried alive, twice, as it happens. The Usher sets are back with new painted flats and torture equipment to bump the house up to a castle. The establishing shot is a bigger glass painting with crashing waves included. Vinny keeps his mustache, which saves behind-the-scenes drama, and wears tights, always a big favorite with him. One morning I wake and find I've grown a mustache too. Plus I'm thinner, paler, and more watery-eyed. And my wardrobe, which was once full of snazzy striped threads, runs to basic black. I don't think much of it, because the times they are a-changing. Pitt is, if anything, bigger, boffier buckso than Asha, and the walls start closing in. Tales of Terror gets through its remake of House of Usher in the first reel and calls it Morala. Then it runs through The Black Cat and a cask of Amontillado. Peter Laurie and Vinny compete in a face-pulling contest for the second act. Finishing up with The Facts in the Case of Monsieur Valdemar, bad-tempered Basil Rathbone turns Vinny into a nearly liquid mass of loathsome, of detestable putrescence, since most of the pages are now torn out of my book, I venture the opinion that we're using up doable Poe at an alarming rate, especially since AIP are cranking out more than one of these pitches a year. I try to get Rue Morgue back on the table, determined Bumba will have his comeback before the well runs dry. After only one and a half remakes of House of Usher, everyone is bored again. The curse of success in this business, if you ask me, and trying to break out. First, Roger sneaks off to do the premature burial at another outfit, with Ray Moland playing Vincent Price, but Sam and Jim buy into the deal, so Roger's sucked back in. Premature isn't quite as much of a remake of Usher as Pitt and Morella, but it's a remake of the scheme to drive the husband-crazy subplot Matheson padded out Pitt with. Roger wants to hop Farg off and make, I don't know, socially significant movies about segregation. He winds up buried alive in Venice, California, in those standing Danny Haller sets, decaying mansions with stock furniture, tiny soundstage exteriors with false perspective stunted trees, dry ice mist pooling over bare floor. Peaked that Miland is daring to usurp his shtick, Vinnie hairs all over the library doing Master of the World, Confessions of an Opium Eater, Twice Told Tales, Diary of a Madman, and Tower of London. In Vinnie's mouth, Verne, de Quincy, Hawthorne, de Maupassant, and Shakespeare somehow turn into Poe. Brooding youth, velvet jackets, buried alive girls, Vinnie a flutter. Crypt in the basement, house burns down, swirly credits. The Shakespeare... Tower of London is Richard III, translated into English, is directed by Roger, who swears he can't remember being on the set. He admits it's possible the film got shot during a blackout he had during a screening of a Russian science fiction film he was cutting the special effects out of to fit around rubber monster scenes shot by some kid to see release as rocket voyage to the planet of prehistoric women of blood. Meanwhile, Vinny is muy fortunado, lording it over the castles of AIP, hawking Sears Roebuck art selections and cookbooks on the side. Even the critics start noticing they get the same picture every time. Recalling that this happened before, I propose an ingenious solution. When Universal got in a rut with Frankenstein, Dracula, and mummy pictures, they had the monsters meet Abba and Costello. Comedy killed off the cycle. Once you've laughed at a horror, it's never frightening again. Since Lou's passed away, we can't get the team back. 
But I suggest it would at least triple the hilarity if Bud's new comedy partner is a rotund, talented chimpanzee. And AIP can launch a new series with Abbott and Bumba Meet the Black Cat. It'll slay him in the stalls when Bumba starts tossing loathsome, detestable putrescence at Vinnie Price's mustache. We can build Bumba as the chimp of the perverse. Before I sell Jim, Sam, and Roger, not to mention Bud Abbott on this, Matheson dashes off a funny remake of House of Usher, purportedly based on The Raven. It breaks my heart to tell Bumba he's been benched again, but the ass prod gig is still live, and EAPSOB dues are pouring in. The Raven, for comedy value, casts Vinny as the brooding youth in tights, makes the buried alive chick a faithless slut, and has Boris Karloff play Vincent Price. The castle still burns down in by now scratchy stock footage, which almost counts as a joke. Laurie is in it, too, driving Karloff nuts, making up his own dialogue. The Juve is some piranha-toothed nobody who lands the job by spreading a false rumor he's Jim Nicholson's illegitimate son. When it comes out that he isn't, Sam swears that the grinning kid will never work in this town again, though it's too late to cut him out of the terror. Yet another remake of House of Usher that Roger shoots in three days because he still has Karloff under contract. The twist here is that the house is washed away rather than burned down. After sending the cycle up with the raven and cynically hammering it into the ground with the terror, there's no way this perpetuation of Poe can persist, so relief all around in a sense everyone can move on to better, or at least new, things in 1964. Jim thinks H.P. Lovecraft would be the new Poe and buys up a ton of his stories. Yes, AIP layout for film rights. Banner headlines in Variety. Having missed out with Vern, Hawthorne, De Quincey, and the other bums, I found the Howard Phillips Lovecraft Society of Providence. I pour through the outsider and others, determined to find a tale with a good part for a chump. The best I can manage is a rat with a withered human head in Dreams in the Witch House, which should be close enough. But first up on AIP's Lovecraft schedule is the case of Charles Dexter Ward, only it's going to be the curse of Charles Dexter Ward. Curse, which sounds like swearing and violence, is a better movie title word than case, which sounds like measles and bed rest. For some reason no one can fathom, Roger wants the non-bastard Nicholson to play Charles Dexter Ward. He thinks up this scene where Chuck is possessed by his evil wizard ancestor and smashes an axe through a door to get to his terrified wife, Deborah Paget, while shouting something from The Tonight Show. I know that would never work, but keep quiet. Vinny, meanwhile, happily breezes off to play Big Daddy in Sweet Charity on Broadway, intending to conquer a whole new career as a musical comedy star. The velvet jackets go in storage. The burning building footage goes back in the cans. As per HPL, this time, the monster is the monster. Though I don't live anywhere remotely near a witch house, I'm tormented by dreams. Not of human-faced rats or green monkeys, but an angry eddy. In my restless slumber, Poe comes to me with a long list of grievances which, in my official EAP SOB capacity, he wants presented to Congress, the publishing industry, drinking establishments long since gone out of business, the United States Army, and sundry other bodies and individuals. 
with his name writ large on panoramic magic lantern screens undreamed of even in the thousand and third tale of Shahrazad. He feels he has the attention of a general public who once gave him the shortest of shrifts and wishes to plead for a redress of wrongs done long ago. I put these dreams down to the rich foods I'm able to afford thanks to ass prod fees and think hard about cutting down on lunches. At the Charles Dexter Ward preview, we find out something mysterious and beyond imagining has happened during production. I settle into my seat with a big bucket of popcorn Sam has made me pay for, certain that the HPL SOP is going to trash the EAB SOB in the coming fiscal year. The lights go down, the curtains crank open, and the projector whirs. The AIP logo fills the screen. The opening title is not H.P. Lovecraft's The Curse of Charles Dexter Ward, but Edgar Allan Poe's The Haunted Palace. There's a rustling, creeping, susurrating, terror-filled sensation in the house. The wet cigar falls from Sam's open mouth. Roger puts on dark glasses and starts to cry. Jim gets up and checks with the projectionist that this is the right film. I know now we're all cursed. It will never be free of Eddie Poe Rex. The velvet jackets are back. The fog swirls in those same tiny sets. There's a crypt in the basement where the monster lives. It's out of focus. Vincent Price, grieving for lost chances on the Great White Way, plods through a part written for a much younger, scarier man, bidding a bittersweet farewell to life as the new Rex Harrison, or the white Sammy Davis Jr., Finally, as we sob in the screening room, the house burns down. It's another remake of House of Usher. After burning beams collapse for the ninth or tenth time, there's even a quote. While, like a rapid ghastly river through the pale door, a hideous throng rush out forever and laugh, but smile no more. Edgar Allan Poe. We know how that pale throng feel. In melancholy despair, Roger flees to swing in England, vowing to make films about Oliver Cromwell and the Beatles. Unable to resist the faithful clutch of dread destiny, he shoots the mask of the Red Death in the tomb of Ligeia with Vinnie Price, buried girls, burning buildings, swirly credits, and end quotes. The boundaries which divide life from death are at best shadowy and vague. Who can say where the one ends and the other begins? And darkness and decay and the red death held illimitable dominion over all. There's nothing Roger can do. He hires Richard Chamberlain, Christopher Lee, Shirley MacLaine, or Jerry Lewis, but visits the star's dressing room on the first day of the shoots to find ashen-faced, quivering-jowled, red-eyed Vinnie Price having his eyebrows powdered and helped into another velvet jacket. I wind up the HPLSOP and find myself shackled full-time to the interests of the EAPSOB, which has regional chapters in Boston, New York, Paris, and Antarctica. The Society brings a massive lawsuit against NASA, claiming that the Apollo program infringes the intellectual property rights of the balloon hoax. Bumba drowns in his swimming pool. At Hollywood Lawn, I march leaden-footed behind Cheetah, Bonzo, J. Fred Muggs, and Stanley, billed as more fun than a barrel of teenagers in Disney's The Monkey's Uncle. 
as they carry the child-sized coffin to the tiny grave. Judy, a simian slut who wormed away into Bumba's affections, then stole a plum-continuing roll on Dakari from him, makes a show of honking bogus grief into her Kleenex. The wake is a gloomy, ill-tempered affair. I repress an urge to daub the sanctimonious surviving chimps with pitch, string them up from the beams at Ben Frank's, and set light to them. Poe goes on. Roger, running in vain from the Red Death, takes a trip around the world in eighty pitches. City in the Sea, the Oblong Box, the Conqueror Worm, murders in the Rue Morgue, finally but with a goddamn gorilla suit and made in Spain, Xing the Paragrab, the system of Dr. Tar and Professor Feather. All the tales and poems are consumed, so AIP start in on the essays. In Eureka, a velvet-jacketed philosopher is on the point of understanding how the universe functions when his buried-alive niece claws at his eyes and the house catches fire. My hair long and lank, my cheeks hollow, my eyes red-veined, my mustache floppy. I realize I look like Eddie Poe. Considering he was found near death in ill-fitting clothes borrowed from someone else, it seems I even dress like the unhappy poet whose still-beating heart of horror I discern beneath the floorboards of my office or bricked up in the basement of my bungalow, which doesn't even have a basement. Everywhere I go, every mirror I look into, I glimpse the specter of myself silently accusing, Thou art the man." I am that unhappy master who unmerciful disaster followed fast and follows faster till my songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope at that melancholy burden bore of never, never more. But I'm not alone in being by horror haunted, by Eddie ensnared, by Alan alienated, by Poe persecuted. By now, it's not just Roger films and Vinny vehicles. It's everything Jim and Sam put into production. Alongside remakes of The House of Usher, AIP are doing annual reunions of Beach Party, itself a thinly disguised remake of Gidget, with beach bums and bikini babes surfing and smooching to tunes of Frankie and Annette, plus comedy Hell's Angels led by Rocco Barbella from Bilko. Even in the first beach party, the first signs are there when Big Daddy, who runs the hangout shack on the beach, looks up and turns out to be Vincent Price. AIP try a James Bond skit and it comes out as Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine with Vinnie Price using a razor pendulum to part Frankie Avalon's hair. Soon all beach pictures bear the mark of Poe. Buried alive bikini, beach blanket Berenice, muscle beach Metzengerstein. Annette spends more time in a shroud than a bathing suit, with a black cat entombed in her beehive hairdo. Rod Usher takes over the Hell's Angels, wearing a studded velvet jacket and a floppy tasseled cap, and complains that the revenue of bikes is torture to his oversensitive ears. We're all drinking heavily now and choking on the poison. The Hollywood Reporter prints an item that Jim is on the point of marrying his thirteen-year-old cousin— Variety claims Roger is trying to raise funds for a southern literary magazine when he ought to be shooting a motor racing picture in Europe. At the Brown Derby, they say Sam is never seen without a raven flapping ominously after him, croaking whole stanzas. Vinny lands a primetime comedy special, but it comes out as An Evening with Edgar Allan Poe. My second-best client, a rare and radiant exotic dancer who the angels name Lenore, flies from my agency door, and I spend much time agonizing about her lost and lovely tassels. 
Still, it continues. AIP try a war picture. It turns out to feature a brooding young commando who storms a Nazi castle in search of his missing girlfriend and finds Vinny in a Velva SS uniform before inevitable torture, burial alive, and burning down. With his producer's hat on, Roger sends some film students and the Nicholson kid into the desert to make a western, and they come back with Vinny as an accursed cattle baron, doppelganger gunslingers, and a cattle stampede flattening the ranch house in place of the fire. Rocket Voyage, the planet of prehistoric women of blood, eventually sells to television with the hammer and sickle insignia on the spacecraft blotted out. It is somehow re-edited. A brooding young astronaut lands on a haunted world where Mr. Touch-and-Go Bullethead, Vincent Price, rules a telepathic tribe of ululating bikini girls who are interred living within the tomb as doom-haunted dinosaurs set fire to the whole planet. Then it's not just American International. The plague shows up as little things in little films. Two cavalry troopers called William Wolfson in the Great Sioux Massacre. A Pink Panther cartoon called Dial P for Pendulum. A premature burial in John Goldfarb, Please Come Tomorrow. Then a descent into the maelstrom. The Red Death arrives during the revolutionary scenes of Dr. Zhivago, and the rest of the film finds darkness and despair descending illimitably over Omar Sharif and Julie Christie. The Agony and the Ecstasy features Charlton Heston laboring for decades over a small oval portrait of one of Roderick Usher's ancestors. The spy who came in from the cold winds up with Richard Burton clutching a purloined letter and ranting that the orangutan did it. Even a John Wayne Howard Hawks western turns on a Poe poem, El Dorado. The curse is complete when movie theaters book The Sound of Music as a roadshow attraction and get The Sound of Meowing. In vast, empty, decaying, haunted picture palaces around the land, Julie Andrews climbs ragged mountains and pokes around the basement only to find Captain Von Trapp, Vincent Price, has walled up his wife along with their noisy cat. In the end, Austria burns down. My senses are more painfully acute by the hour. I cannot venture out by day unless the sun is completely obscured by the thickest, gloomiest cloud, and after dark can tolerate only the tiniest flickering flame of a candle. My ears are assaulted by the faintest sound. A housewife tearing open a cereal packet two blocks away reverberates within my skull like the discharge of a Gatling gun. I can bear only the most pallid of foods and neglect my formerly favored watering holes to become a ghoul-like habitué of the new McDonald's chain where fare that tastes of not-safe cardboard can be found at the expense of a few trivial cents. The touch of my secretary becomes as sandpaper upon my appallingly sensitive skin and raises sharp pains, sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at my pores. Few in the industry return my telephone calls, which is all to the good, since I can, of course, scarcely bear the torture of tintinabulation of the bells, of the bells, 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 of the moaning and the groaning of the bells. Movies are only the beginning. Soon Poe is everywhere. The house is the monster, and the house is the United States of America. The breakout TV hits of the next seasons are The Usher Family, The Man from U-L-A-L-U-M-E, and The Mary Tyler Roger Show. Vincent Price takes over from Walter Cronkite and intones the bad news in a velvet jacket, promising much of madness and more of sin, and horror the soul of the plot. He reports from Vietnam, Washington, and the Middle East. 
Sonny and Cher take The Colloquy of Monos and Una to number one on the hip parade, followed by Procol Harum's A Whiter Shade of Poe, Scott McKenzie's San Francisco, Be Sure to Put Some Flowers on Your Grave, The Mamas and the Pampas Dream a Little Dream Within a Dream of You, The Archie's Bonbon, and Dean Martin's Little Old Amontillado Drinker Me. Vinny hosts American Bandstand, too, warily scanning the dancers for a skull-face figure in red robes. A craze for floppy shirts, ink-stained fingers, and pale faces seizes the surfer kids, and everyone on the strip has a pet raven or a trained ape. Beauty contests for cattle optics are all the rage, and Miss Universe is crowned with a wreath in her coffin as she is solemnly bricked up by the judges. The Green Berets adopt a conqueror worm cap badge. Housing developments rise up tottering on shaky ground near stagnant ponds with pre-stressed materials to provide usher cracks and incendiaries built into the light fittings for more spectacular conflagrations. The most popular names for girls in 1966-7 are Lenore, Annabelle, Legia, and Madeline. In the kingdom by the sea we are haunted. In the El Dorado of Los Angeles, white fog lies thick on the boulevards. The mournful nevermores of ravens perched on statues is answered by the strangled mewling of black cats immured in basements. And the seagulls chime in with Tekeli Lee, Tekeli Lee, as if that was any help. During the whole of a dull, dark, and soundless day in the autumn of the year, when the clouds hang oppressively low in the heavens, I pass alone in a Cadillac convertible through a singularly dreary tract of country, and at length find myself, as the shades of evening draw on, within view of the melancholy house of Roger. I know not how it is, but with the first glimpse of the building a sense of insufferable gloom pervades my spirit. I try to shake off the fog, like the afterdream of a reveler upon Mary Jane, in my brain, and rid my mind of the words of Poe, yet he sits beside me, phantasmal, fiddling with radio dial, breathing whiskey and muttering in intricate rhyme schemes. I've taken the Pacific Coast Highway to Malibu, where AIP and Corman, flush with monies from the Poe pitches, have thrown up a studio in a bleak castle atop the jagged cliffs. From the road it looks as phony as a glass shot. The scrublands all around are withered and sear, and I'm not even sure what sear means. The castle seems abandoned, but I gain access to a wide crack in the walls. In the gloom I find the others, Roger in dark glasses with side panels, Sam with Raven chewing on a cigar, Jim haunted by the doppelganger who no longer claims to be his son, Vinny, worst of us all, liquid face dribbling over his frilly shirt, eyebrows and mustache shifted inches lower by the tide of loathsome, of detestable putrescence. A few others are with the crowd, the embalmed, toothless corpse of Laurie, an ancient withered ape just recognizable as Boris Karloff, early breathing girls and a teenage singer coughing blood into a handkerchief, an ignored brooding youth or two hiding in the shadows and trying to avoid being upstaged. All eyes are accusingly upon me. Thou art a man, is written plainly on everyone's faces. I admit it to myself and the plague-ravaged company. We have brought Poe back. Neglected and despised in life, to his mind cheated of the riches and recognition due his genius, he has been kept half alive in the grave, plagiarized and paperbacked, bought and sold and made joke of. 
No wonder we have raised an angry eddy, a vindictive and spiteful genius. This time he's caught on, and he will not let go. Not of us, and not of the world. This is the dawning of the age of Edgar Allan, the era of mystery and imagination. We have ushered <clears throat> it in, but we are to be its mummified, stuffed, walled-up victims. The sacrifices necessary for the foundations of even the shakiest edifice. I have a new horror. It seizes my brain like a vulture's, no, a raven's talons. I hear the faint whisper of nails against wood, the tapping of hairy knuckles against a coffin lid, that first gibber of fear before the awful realization takes hold. I can hear Bomba and know that, through my neglect, I have suffered him to be buried alive. The jibber becomes a snarling, hooting, raging, clawing, shriek. The tapping, as of someone gently rapping, becomes a hammering, a clamoring, a gnawing, a pawing, a crashing, a smashing. Wood breaks, earth parts, and long-fingered, bloody, torn-nailed, horribly semi-human hands grope for the bone handle of the straight razor. Jim and Sam want to know what to do, how to escape. To them, every contract has a get-out clause. Roger and Vinny know this isn't true. Without, a storm rages. The heavens rage at the sorrows of the world. A door opens with a creak. The attenuated shadow of a chimpanzee is cast upon the flagstones, gleaming cruel blade held high. We turn to look. Our capacity for wonder and terror long since exceeded. Brush fires burn all around, struggling against the torrents. The crack that runs through the castle, the crack that runs through California, widens with great shouts as of the planet itself in pain and terror. A million tons of mud is on the march, and we stand between it and the sea. The walls bend and bow like painted canvas flats. A candle falls, and flames spread. A maiden screams a burning bird streaks comet-like through the air. The apes clutches at my throat, the razor held high. In Bomba's glittering, baleful eye, I discern cruel recognition. Vinny, before the burning beams come down, has to have the last quote. The screenplay is the tragedy of man, and its hero, the conqueror worm, Edgar Allan Ah, yes. Illimitable Dominion manages very nicely to weave together two strands of Kim Newman's writing druthers, to wit, horror film history and recasting the lives of real people. I almost hesitate to call this piece fiction, except for the fact that it is. It does, however, rely heavily on, on the facts of American International, of Samuel Z. Arkoff, the great Roger Corman, et al. And he twists the tropes around poor old Vincent Price, doesn't he? I mean, <laughs> Kim Newman knows whereof he writes. He began life as a Dracula imitator. I've seen the photos. And began his writing career doing film comment and criticism. 
Okay, he's won lots of awards, and you ought to get to know his work. Click on his website below and follow the threads. Thanks again, Kim. Our narrator for the evening, Nathan Lowell, has been one of our steadiest, most constant readers here in the Nook. Great work again, Nathan. Uh, Nathan is a writer-narrator who read B.C. Bell's How Pappy Got Five Acres Back and Calvin Stayed on the Farm way back in show four, I guess it was, here at Tales to Terrify. People who know him from podcasting might not know that he's a teacher. Listeners who know him from the golden age of the Solar Clipper might not know about Tales from the Lamas Woods. He's all of that. He's a teacher, a writer, an expert in web accessibility. So stop by his site at nathanlowell.org. That's all one word, nathanlowell, L-O-W-E-L-L dot org. Or just click on the link below. So, my friends, we children of the night must separate for another small time. We'll be together again next week, same place, here in the nook for some summer chills, some autumn wishes, and I'm going to toss you out now. Watch your way. It's dark out there, and things wander in summer dark, you know. But, yeah, you've made it home before, and you'll make it home tonight. Get home, turn on the air, the cool air of the Lovecraft tale, hmm? Breathe deeply, settle down, dream a dream of Hollywood, of painted sets and purple prose. Let the night take you into what I know will be pleasant dreams. Mm. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 